Life family because I love that I could walk into this building and I don't know most of you. I know a couple of you actually, but I don't know most of you. Um, but I can say, hello, family. Like, you guys are my family. Um, so I love that. We're, we're family in multiple ways. We, we're part of New Life, so we have 27 locations throughout the city, but we're one church who worships um, across the city. And we're family because of that. But we're also family because of something much deeper, the reason that we're this New Life community church, because we're gathered here on Sunday to worship our King, Jesus. And um, so I just love that. And so thank you for your hospitality, for welcoming my wife and I uh, into this place and, and um, yeah, treating us as family. Um, one thing I love about this New Life family is that we have been uh, moving through this series together called Finding Jesus. Um, in this series, we've been asking the question, where, where, can we, where can we find Jesus? If you're in this room this morning, chances are that you're interested in figuring out where Jesus is, what he's doing, and who he is. Either you're already a committed follower of Jesus, and you want to have a deeper relationship to know him more, to become more like him. Or you might be a seeker this morning, and you're trying to figure out who is this Jesus, and what is he all about, and is he worth my time? So I love this series because we've been asking the question, how do we come to know Jesus more deeply? How do we figure out who he is and what, what, the, what scripture tells us about who he is and what he can um, bring about in our lives? My favorite thing about it, though, is that we're jumping into the Old Testament, right? We've been journeying through this scary part of the Bible that we sometimes don't like to go to, the Old Testament, for a lot of us, the Old Testament is an unfamiliar and intimidating part of our Bibles. It takes up most of it. More than half of our Bible is the Old Testament. Yet as Christians, we love to spend most of our time in the New Testament. And it makes sense, right? That's where we see Jesus. That's where we read about his story and his ministry and his teaching. That's where we get Paul. Paul tells us about Jesus and all the things that his, his crucifixion and resurrection means for us. And for some of you guys, some of you guys like that edgy stuff. So you love the book of Revelation, right? And that's just like, you wish we could talk about that more. So we love the New Testament. It makes sense because Jesus is all over the place there. Very clearly, we read his name. But when we go to the Old Testament, it's a lot harder to see him, right? We don't have a story about him walking and calming a sea. We don't have a story um, about him teaching directly with his own words. But what we've been learning through this series, Finding Jesus, is that together, the Old and the New Testament, together tell this grand, beautiful, wonderful story about who God is and what he's doing in our world and how our story fits in to his story. What I like to say is that, uh, I stole this from a guy named Christopher Wright, but the Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes, and it declares the promise that Jesus keeps. The Old Testament tells the, sl the story that Jesus completes, and it declares the promise that Jesus keeps. Everything that we read in Scripture leads us to one place, to the Son of God, to Jesus, who came to save us from this mess that we found ourselves in. So the Old Testament gives us a promise. And I know a couple weeks ago you guys talked about God who is the promise keeper, the one who is 
faithful to his covenant. And that's really beautiful to think about. Today I want to ask the question, what happens when that promise keeper doesn't seem to keep his promise? What happens when we're not just looking for Jesus in the Bible, but we're looking around at our lives and we can't seem to figure out what he's doing? What happens when it feels like the promise has faded from God's point of view and we're, we're left on our own? What happens when we struggle to find Jesus? We're going to find out that that concern, that worry, that question is not a new question. That's a question that people have been asking for centuries and centuries and centuries. And we even find that question in the story of Scripture itself. So if you've ever wondered to f- where you could find Jesus, where you can look to find him, I hope that today, this morning, that we can get a glimpse of the way that he is at work in our midst, even though we don't always see it, and even if we struggle to believe it. So would you pray with me as we uh, get ready to jump into scripture? Lord, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather as a family, to gather together um, to worship you through singing songs, through fellowshipping with one another and and having conversations and meeting new people, and Lord, through hearing your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and to be transformed by what you have for us this morning. Lord, uh, we pray that uh, that you would speak to us. Help us to be attentive to you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, would you open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. There are Bibles in the pews if you didn't bring your own, or you could pull out your phone and Google it. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's no shame in looking in the table of contents. There's two Samuels, one and two Samuel. We're going to be in the second one. Um, The title of my sermon this morning is God the Builder. God the Builder, in uh, paying homage to Bob the Builder, one of my favorite shows (laughs) growing up. Because we're going to talk about building houses today. So God the Builder is the title. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Before we read, I want to give a little bit of context as we jump into the story. Where we come into the story here in chapter 7, we come to meet a guy named David. And many of us have heard of him before. He's that one guy we heard about, the David and Goliath guy, right? He was a young shepherd boy who spent his time taking care of sheep. He was often forgotten, the least of all his brothers. But God saw something different in him. You see, the story of First and Second Samuel, in my opinion, would make an amazing HBO TV series. So if any of you have a gift for like screenwriting or directing, I think you should put this on your list to consider. Because First and Second Samuel is filled with all kinds of dramatic, crazy things that happened, that happened in David's life. And it starts with a desire uh, from the people of God, from the people of Israel, for a king. They want a king. There's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in their lives. Uh, there are enemies all around them who are oppressing them and attacking them. Um, the people of Israel themselves are constantly turning their backs on God and running into these dangerous, sinful, crazy situations where they're getting themselves into these big messes. So they think, how can we get out of this mess? 
The answer they come, come up with is, we need a king. They see all the nations around them, and they've got kings, and they say, we want one too. But the problem was, the king that they desired was a king that was not faithful to the way of life that God desired for his people. Right? God created his people for flourishing, for, for blessing, for goodness, to live a life of love and beauty in the world. But the king that the people desired was abusive and unstable and unfaithful to the God who had delivered them and brought them redemption. So, in answer to that problem, God has a different plan. He says, you know what, I will give you a king, but I'm going to give you a king that you're not looking for. I'm going to give you a king who will be faithful to me and my, the way of life that I desire for you. I will give you a king who is someone that I will choose, and I am going to be with him. That guy's name is David. So God brings David, this young shepherd boy, to a, from a place of... Uh, of a place where he's unknown to a place where he becomes the king over Israel. The reason why I think it would be a great TV show is there's all kinds of like, the, the former king, King Saul, because he's unstable, is like, he is, feels threatened by David and he chases him all throughout the wilderness with his army and like it's this big game of cat and mouse. He's constantly trying to kill David and eliminate the threat to his throne. But throughout all that time, God is faithful to him and fights, like we sang earlier, the battle belongs to you. God fights on behalf of David to bring him to a place of victory. So that's the context, and there's so much more to it, but that's the, the quick overview of the context as we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has just become king finally after all of that time. So let's read now. We see in this first section that David desires to build a house for God. So let's read in verse 1. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, look, I, I, dwell, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Let's pause there for a second. We see here David desires to build a house for God, and that desire comes out of this realization he has. David, who is king, is sitting in his palace, made of this strong cedar wood, this house that is mighty and strong and communicates royalty and permanence. And David notices a little bit of a housing discrepancy between him and God. He's in a house of cedars, but he looks, and God is dwelling in a tent. A tent, this place of vulnerability, this place of impermanence. It's important to see uh, where this comes from. I know last week, Pastor Don 
preached and talked with you guys about um, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle when he talked about atonement, right? So in uh, the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, God rescued his people from that place of bondage and oppression. And he brings them out into the wilderness and says, I'm going to make you into a people and bring you to a place where you can live and uh, be free from oppression. And the place, and God uh, uh, escorts his people all the way there. He, he dwells with his people on the way to the promised land. And the way he chooses to dwell with them is in a tent called the tabernacle. We have a picture on there in the slides. A tent called the tabernacle and in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, similar to the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but not the same. It's pretty different. But that ark represents God's presence. God is present throughout the world, but he's present in a special way in this place called the tabernacle. This is the place where people came to worship God, to be near him, to be in his presence. And if we come back to 2 Samuel, in the chapter just before chapter 7, one of the first things David does when he becomes king is he takes that Ark of the Covenant that was outside of the city and he brings it into Jerusalem, into the city. He moves the presence of God to live in this place. So that's the tent that David is talking about. David is looking at this tent and saying, uh, God doesn't deserve to live there. He deserves something better. He deserves something bigger and I'm going to take it upon myself to build it. The thing is, the problem is, God isn't interested in that at the moment, right? He, he says in verses 4 through 7, he's saying, look, throughout all this time, in all my time with your people, with the people of Israel, I have lived in a tent. And did I ever ask for a house of cedar? No, I, I have been content to dwell in a tent with my people. This is the way I have chosen to be with my people. And so I think the, the interesting thing we have here is that from the outside, uh, there are certain appearances that might make us think that God is vulnerable and weak, and David thinks that as well. He deserves a place. I'm not saying David thinks that God was weak, but he thinks God needs to have this place of honor, this place of security. And so makes a plan to do it. But God has other plans. So let's read on to, to see that God desires, rather than David building a house for him, God desires to build a house for David, thus God the builder. And this house isn't uh, a house that you're going to find on HGTV or um, on Zillow when you're looking for houses, right? This isn't anything that Chip and Joanna Gaines can build. This is something different and something deeper. So let's read on in in verses 8 and following. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, Look, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel 
and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So here we see, oh, and then we see in the next, sorry, the ending of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So the Lord continues, God continues his response to David. He says, look, I see that you desire to build me a house. But look, right now, that's not my concern. I'm fine with living in a tent. In fact, I have bigger plans for you. I have something else in mind. I am going to bless you because there's something bigger at play here. God, he, he, he points to D- David back to his past. He says, David, think back on uh, back when you were a young shepherd boy. Back in the time when you would walk around with your sheep and the best thing, like you were literally counting sheep. And that's what your life was. And look at your life now. What is the difference between those two places? The temptation from the outside might be to see that David has accomplished all these things, right? David is this mighty warrior and this mighty king. But what God shows here is that all along, David's resume, what's standing behind David's resume is God's own resume. The enemies that David defeats were actually the enemies that God defeated on behalf of David. The place that God had brought David to was not because of anything David had done, but was out of grace from what God had done. And so he says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to change your perspective a little bit to something else. I'm going to build you a house. And we read about this house, the, 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 the specificity of this house in verse 12. So let's finish this little section, verses 12 through 17. This is what God says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, that king that had preceded David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forevermore before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan brings this message back to David. David, now's not the time for you to build a house. God has bigger plans. He is going to build you a house. And what we see is that this house is not a literal physical building, David already has that, right? His house of cedars. God has something else in mind. God, what, 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 uh, what we see in this passage is God making, forming a covenant with David. Now, I know a couple weeks ago, Pastor Bobby talked about um, the covenant that God had made with Abraham, if you remember. If you remember that 
crazy passage where Abraham has to take the different animals and like cut them in half and make this little pathway. It's like a really gross and like heavy metal, but my dad would love this passage actually. But this crazy passage, uh, but the, the thing is in this story, God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, look, there's this little problem in, those, in the world called sin. And it's making a mess of things. But I have a plan to bring you through this. So he makes this covenant, which is a commitment. A commitment that structures a relationship, right? So there are two parties in a relationship. And they decide, we're going to make this relationship formal. And so a covenant is almost like a contract where two parties come together and put a structure to their faithful, to, be, to, to commit to be faithful to their relationship with one another. So God says, Abraham, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you to land. I'm going to give you a, a place where I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through that great nation, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. All the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That's a covenant we see, and as we continue through Scripture, we come to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, where we see another covenant built on that same idea. It almost takes Abraham's covenant and specifies it. And so he comes to David. David, who is like the great, 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 whatever, grandson of Abraham, he comes to him and says, look, I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to give you a throne that lasts forever. You're going to have a son who raises up after you. And his kingdom will be established and it'll be an everlasting kingdom. This is the covenant that God makes with David. And he says, Your son is going to be like he's my son. I will be your son's father and your son will be my son. And if we think about that for a moment, that's like, that's pretty crazy, right? Like if someone walked into your house and was like, if you have a child, it's like, hey, I've, I'm looking for a child. Your son will now be mine. We call the cops, right, immediately? Like that's a cause for alarm. It's, why? Because it's an extreme claim, one that no one really has the right to make. But God is saying something deeper here. I'm going to have such a relationship with your son that I will guide him like a father. I will be with him like a father. He will be like a, uh, with me like a son. And that includes discipline when he steps out of line. So we have this covenant. But what, how, does this, what, how does this fit in our own lives? Right, We're reading this story from a couple thousand years ago. But what can we see for ourselves in here? How can we see ourselves in this story? I think one thing, before we get to a bigger application, one thing that we can see is that so often God's plans are so much bigger than our own. We, we often have these great dreams that we have in mind, right? These great things that we're going to do on behalf of God. And, and we think we do such amazing things for God, but in the end, like, when we really think about it, it's God all along who has been empowering us to do those things, we look at our accomplishments, we look at the things that we have done, and it's, very, it's really tempting to be filled up with pride for what we've accomplished. 
But what God comes to David and, and says is, look, that, all that stuff has been me this whole time. I have been the one lifting you up and empowering you. I think one way that this applies, and it hits me, is that sometimes we dream for really big things, right? Sometimes we dream for really big things. We dream of starting this big business, or we dream of getting into the career of our choice and making it big. We dream of having a certain house that looks a certain way in a certain place. For those of us who might feel called to ministry, we've, we imagine ourselves leading this big church and this big congregation and we can desire these big things for ourselves. And we have these big dreams. And I'm not saying you shouldn't dream, because dreams are important. But I think what this passage warns us about, sometimes the good things we dream about aren't the God things that we should dream about. Sometimes the things we dream of are good, but they're not what God has in mind. They're not what God desires. And it takes, it's pretty difficult to, to, to let go of our dreams when we realize that God has something else planned for us. It's really easy when we, when we um, like, plan small. You know, I just want to start a business. I don't know why I keep using that um, example. I just want to start a business. I want to start a family. Um, I just want to live at home and take care of my children, whatever it is, whether you're a father or a mother. We have these small plans, and then God calls us to something bigger. That could be surprising and scary, but it's great in the end, right? We get, this, we, we get to do more than we planned for. What I struggle with is when God asks me to do less than I planned for. And I've had to struggle with this because when you go to Bible college, you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are excited for like serving God, and they want to go into ministry and change the world and preach these amazing sermons and write books and do all that, like, have this big church and things like that. And that's what we see success as, as these big things. And maybe it's something different for you. Sometimes God has something much smaller planned for you, but it's, it, it's even more important than what you have. For, so for example, for me, it's this idea of like, often in youth, I, I serve as the youth pastor at our church, at our location in Norwood Park, and whenever someone asks me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a youth pastor. They say, oh, so when are you going to move on to be a real pastor? Right? When are you going to be a real pastor? And that's the mentality that people have around it. And it's, so it's tempting to go along with that and to say, oh, this youth ministry, it's just like a little stepping stone, a little training ground to go into what is actually real ministry. I've had to fight that temptation in myself to think that way. What the Lord has shown me as I've worked with the youth at our location, these young people who are going through so much and who have such deep gifts and, and, and really profound understandings of who God is, what I've understood is that even if I stay as a youth pastor of 25 kids for the next 10 years, it will all be worth it because the impact that you can have in, that, in those lives, with that amount of time, go so much deeper than we often think we can have with a big platform or a big social media following or uh, attention and news coverage and all these things. We often think that we need to go for power and publicity. Sometimes God is content to dwell in a tent. 
And are we okay with a God who lives that way? So God sometimes steps in and says, look, I've got bigger plans for you. I'm going to take it from here. And he says that to David. You're not going to build me a house. I've got plans. Actually, your son is going to build me a house. And we're going we're gonna to move on from there. And David, to his credit, says, all right. He, he goes, he, and if we were to keep reading in this passage, we would see David, what he, the way he responds is he goes straight to prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for crushing my dream. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for ruining my goal. Right? He says, thank you, because what you have is so much better than what I thought I needed to do for you. But the question is, remember at the beginning I asked, what happens when God's promise seems to fail? Right? God gives this big promise. Your, your children will have an everlasting kingdom. What happens when his promise seems like it's lost all grounding in reality? What happens when we're struggling to see where that promise went? You see, as we, as we, if, as we continue the story of Scripture, what we find out is that the promise that God has for David has an immediate fulfillment, like a fulfillment in David's time, but there's something that goes beyond it. It reaches beyond David's time. So we see first that David has a son named Solomon. Right? And Solomon becomes king, and he starts off really great. He builds the temple. He builds the house for the Lord to dwell in. And he's wise, and he writes all this amazing poetry that we have in Scripture. But in the end, he gets, his is a crazy story, too. He gets wrapped up in all, these, all this crazy stuff, and he ends up um, making a mess of the kingdom. He's faithful for a bit, but struggles at times. But even then, it's still like, okay, all right, God gave David's son a throne. So, so far, so good. And then problems start to grow as time moves on. Solomon has a son. And in Solomon's son's lifetime, the kingdom completely splits in two through uh, all kinds of mistakes that this king makes. But all of a sudden we see the kingdom, the people of Israel are split in two, are, are divided against each other. So what happens to the kingdom? You keep going through the story, and we see king after king. Uh, there are two kingdoms now, and king after king fails and fails and fails. And when we come to uh, David's descendants, David's house, his dynasty, his, his family of kings, we see that every once in a while we've got a good king, a king who's faithful to God, a king, a king who turns people back to faithfulness to the Lord, but... In the end, there's this constant stumbling, this constant turning their backs on God. Remember, God said, your son, when he strays from the path, when he goes into these harmful ways of being, I'll discipline him. So what we see happen is God's judgment comes into the kingdom, and the kingdom is shattered, and the people are taken into exile. The people are taken into another land, a land foreign to them that they don't know, where there are different gods and different kings, and they sit in that place and they wonder, what happened to the kingdom? What happened to the promise? 
in Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, there are these, this psalmist is sitting in exile, and he's wrestling, he's thinking about the, the promise, the covenant to David. And he's looking around, and he's saying, there's no evidence that this promise holds true, right? The throne that he promised would be everlasting, it's broken. We serve a different king. And he says this in Psalm 89, verse 38 and 39. This is what he says. These are strong words. This is lament. He says, but now you have cast off. He's talking to God. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath, wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servants. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And in verse 46, he says, how long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And in verse 49, he says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? He's having a crisis of faith. God, where are you? Where are you in this? Where is the everlasting throne? Where is the kingdom that would remain? Where is the, the, the descendant of David who would bring us out of this mess. Things have only gotten worse. So where is the king that you promised? In the end of that psalm, he ends, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but in the end, blessed be your name. I trust you. So we see this longing for deliverance and exile begin to deepen and deepen. And I wonder, have you guys ever been there? Have you ever asked the question, how long, oh Lord? How long will we sit in this mess? Look, I, I, I'm, I think we're all pretty familiar with this situation, this situation of sin and this, this mess that we've gotten ourselves into, right? We see it when we open up our phones and we, uh, we see the headlines, Right? We see the mess that is made. We see sin has, uh, has found its way into uh, the place where our politicians are and the place where our business people are. We see leader after leader being corrupted and falling and causing harm. But it, it's, it's not just in the politicians, right? It's not just with the business people because it's also in churches too. Right? Some of us have experienced what people call church hurt or church trauma where the very people who are supposed to love and care uh, for us have instead harmed and hurt us. So we see leader after leader begin to fall. But it's not just there, right? It would be nice if it was just out there. We know it in our own homes, in our own, we know it in our bones. We see the problem of sin and the longing for deliverance in that sharp tone we give to, to our loved ones. After a long day, we see the problem of sin, the mess that we're in when we go home and we, we think the thoughts that we think as we lie in bed at night or when that one person walks into the room at work. We see it in the gossip that we give. We see it in our internet browsing histories. We see it in the ways we spend our money and our spending habits. We need deliverance. We need deliverance, and the question is, where do we look? Because our politicians and our business leaders and our bosses and our parents haven't 
seemed to save us from this mess, the people we've trusted. So where does this go? Where does this longing go as the people of God sit in exile and wait for the king? We see it finally as we turn our pages over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. We read on the very first page of the New Testament. After years and years of languishing and longing, we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus. This is the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right from the beginning of the New Testament, we're told there's someone here. And we'll call him the son of David. And immediately anyone reading that, sitting in that longing for deliverance, would recognize the son of David. Their ears would perk up. Oh, the son of David? There's a promise we heard about this son of David. And when we go to Luke chapter 1, you know, yesterday was the Feast of Annunciation. It's a, it's a, a time that the church celebrates. It's nine months before Christmas. So the Annunciation is when the angel comes and announces to Mary that you are going to give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. So that happened, that the church celebrated that yesterday, on Saturday. But this is what we read in Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33, the birth of Jesus foretold. He says this about Jesus. He will be a great, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we see after these years and years of longing, of leader rising up to try to lead the people, but falling. Rising up and falling, rising up and falling. The same rising up and falling we see in our own day. In the midst of that, we see this man named Jesus, who is the son of David. Who God says he will, be, he will give the throne forever. What he announces here is that the promise that the people thought had failed for all that time, that promise was still working. Because remember how, how David had to learn earlier with the house. God was building something much bigger that was going beyond what David was able to see. God is at work in ways deeper and bigger and broader than what we are able to see. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come in a palace. Jesus wasn't born in silk sheets. Jesus was born in a bed of hay, surrounded by animals and people he didn't know. Jesus was born in a manger. He was not born in a palace. And as we walk with Jesus and we hear that he's the king, there's this interesting thing. This king does not have a crown. This king is a carpenter. He's a a fisherman. He's a poor man who walks with his disciples who are nobodies. And as we continue with this man, we see this man does not have this mighty steed that he rides into battle to take the throne from the king, to defeat the Roman Empire. He doesn't take the kingdom that he's promised by force. Instead, 
he's killed for the kingdom that he preaches. He says, the kingdom that I bring is not a kingdom that sits in palaces. It's the kingdom that sits in poor places where you are found. The kingdom is not for those who are high and lofty and filled with power. The king is for those who are poor and lowly and know they need a savior. And that's our big idea this morning. That's what I want you to come away with this morning. If you forget anything else, that God's answer to our desire for deliverance is the kingship of Christ. God's answer to our desire for deliverance is the kingship of Christ. And as we close, what does this promise look like? As we think of how, this, how our story is wrapped up into this story that, that, that is told through David and his sons and finally in Jesus. What does this promise for a political king look like for us who no longer live in Israelite society, right? Jesus doesn't come and establish his presidency as much as people would like to, right? I think that, that, that hints at a, a difficulty that we have in our lives because this is a struggle I had back in 2019. You guys know Kanye West, the rapper? You guys are like, why is he bringing up Kanye West all of a sudden? <laughs> Kanye West, back in 2019, he released an album called Jesus is King, right? And as, as it was coming to this point where he was about to drop his album, everyone, the conversations I had with people was like, oh man, I can't wait for someone finally to make a good gospel album that people are going to listen to, right? Kanye West is a celebrity who has this big following, and so when he drops this album, all of his followers are going to hear the gospel, and we're going to see this big, you know, finally uh, people are going to pay attention to Jesus, and I think that spoke to a desire that we have for Christianity to have representation in the media. I don't know, have you ever, uh, have you ever felt that way? Like, you get a little excited when you uh, look at an IMDb of a movie and you look at their Wikipedia and it says that they're like a Christian and you get really excited or you're like, oh, they, they're one of us. Maybe they'll like say something really good and people will, you know, they'll give Jesus a good name. We want these representatives in our society who will represent Jesus for us. The problem is that desire that people had for Kanye West, it aged terribly, right? Like, unfortunately, like, yeah, he did not do a good job uh, living out his album title, right? <laughs> but sometimes we can fall into the same trap again and again of wanting someone to represent Jesus for us, to, to take Jesus to this place of power and publicity so that everyone will finally pay attention and our society will turn back to God, right? But sometimes God just wants to live in a tent, right? We want, we want God sometimes as this big house, this big, mighty house, maybe even a white house, if you catch my drift, but... God sometimes is content just to dwell in a tent. And that's where we're at today. That's where we're at today as we see headlines of leaders who leave their promises unfulfilled. 
we see headlines of leaders who fall. We go to work and we see evidence of pain and corruption. We go to our homes and we, we feel the longing for deliverance from this loneliness, this pain, this mess that we're in. In these moments, we can be confident that though the promise seems like it delays, though it seems like we're sitting in that longing and there's no reprieve from it, what Jesus says, what the New Testament says to us is it, it points us back to that covenant that God made with David and reminds us that the throne that God promises is an everlasting throne. And Jesus has come to reign as king, not in the palace, but in the lowly places where the people who need a savior will acknowledge it and say, God, you are faithful to your promise. So that's our encouragement for today. God has a promise for a king and he answers our desire for deliverance with the kingship of Christ. And so as we wait, we stay hopeful we stay confident. We don't put all of our hopes in our elections. We don't put all of our hopes in our celebrities. We don't put all of our hopes in the dreams that we have. But we stay attuned to God and his promise, realizing it that it's much bigger than our own, even if it looks smaller. But Jesus is king and he reigns even now as we wait. He's the king that sits with you in your pain. So as we close, would you all, uh, would you stand with me as we close and as the worship team comes out? <clears throat> and can we all uh, close our eyes and bow our heads in a posture of prayer? I just want to give you an invitation right now to, to reflect and meditate on what does it mean for what does it look like in your life to live as though Jesus is king? To live with the hope that the Messiah, the Savior, the King, that he has come and he is faithful to his promise. And if he has been faithful to the promise before, he will be faithful now and in the future. What does that look like in your life to have that hope are you lonely and waiting for hope? Are you depressed at the future of the world, or the future of this, this nation? Are you depressed about the prospects of your own life, the hopes that you had that seemed to fall into dust? Are you longing for deliverance from your sin and from that place of hopelessness? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to invite you, if you, well, I want to say this to two different people. If you are someone who has come today and you have a relationship with Jesus and you would say confidently, Jesus is my king. I invite you to, to think of your dream, to think of the hopes that you have, to think of um, the lack of hope you may have. And to imagine yourself laying that before Jesus and saying, you are the king and I trust you to be faithful to your promise. 
And if you're in here and you are someone who uh, are still trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing and whether or not he's someone who even exists and if he exists, if he's worth your time, if he really is the son of God. If this morning you feel that the Lord is bringing you to a place where you want to know more, I invite you either during the song or after the service to come up to a leader or or to um, an usher or someone in the back to make that known to them. To make known that you um, have this longing for deliverance and want to know more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I encourage you, I, if, if, if the Lord is working in you now, it's probably true that he's been working with you up to this point, working in you and speaking to you and drawing you forward. So I encourage you, don't wait any longer, but respond to that call. Because Jesus is the king who can deliver you from your longing for deliverance. He brings salvation here and now, today. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a king who is faithful to your promise. Lord, that when you came, you did not wear a golden crown filled with uh, diamonds and pearls and rubies, but no, Lord, you came and you you bore a crown of thorns. Lord, help us to realize that you are not a king who needs power for us to to declare that you are Lord of all. Lord, help us to realize that even when you're in the the places where it seems that you're not working, that you have all power and authority to bring about salvation and to deliver us from our messes that we make and find ourselves in. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us not to trust in, um, in our, the leaders that we have in this world to deliver us from a problem that they can't deliver us from. Help us to take those things seriously and to engage with leaders in our society, but Lord, help us to know ultimately our allegiance belongs to you. And Lord, for anyone here who's struggling with that hope, who's discouraged by what they see in the world or in their own lives, I pray that you would come close to them and help them to see that you are on the throne. And your plan has not been broken. Your promise has not failed, but you are still faithful. So Lord, we thank you for all these things. As we pray, as we sing, Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue to minister to us and help us to see the ways that you are working in our lives. Lord, we love you and you are the king of our lives. Help us to be loyal to you. In your name we pray, amen. Let's sing.